So welcome everybody. We have uh, a lot of new people today and I want to welcome you all. I think we have people from Germany, the UK, Australia, uh, all over the United States. So welcome. We are coming from Southern California and Herb is generously offering this spirituality series as a fundraiser for Mary and Joseph Retreat Center in Rancho Palos Verdes, California. And um, we hope you'll all come visit sometime when we're allowed to travel and to do what we like to do again, which is in, be in each other's company. Um, as you can imagine, as a retreat center, we are um, having trouble just keeping things floating through this difficult time and just able to have small gatherings and not none of our larger retreats. So Herb is um, generously, generously offering us this as a fundraiser to keep us going so that we can maintain the grounds, keep our staff employed and, and keep afloat. And again, I hope you'll check out our website and come visit us sometime. So I'd like to welcome Herb. Um, and today's program is called Sponsorship, Helping Others, Enlarging Compassion on Step 12 of the 12 Steps. And Herb is a um, longtime associate of the Marian Joseph Retreat Center. His um, wife had been, before her death, had been a director at the Retreat Center and really got it up and rolling and made it much of what it is. And Herb has continued to stay close to us and offer 12 step and centering prayer groups at the retreat center and now on Zoom. Herb's journey includes seven years in a Claritian seminary, a graduate education in psychology, 40 years in HR consulting. He's a certified spiritual director has 36 years of active participation in a 12-step fellowship, and he's published three books on spiritual awakening. He's a practitioner of Centering of Prayer since 1990, and he also facilitates a Centering Prayer group. And you'll be, I'm sure, receiving information about those groups online. So again, I'd like to welcome Herb. Herb, thank you so much, and I will turn it over to you. Thanks, Christine. My name is Herb, and I am an alcoholic, and I am so thrilled and uh, excited about our time together and this gathering. Um, I'm going to uh, put us up on uh, some uh, PowerPoints here to begin initiating what we're doing here. I think it'll work. Let's take a look at this. Yes, well, that's who I am. And the topic today is sponsorship, as Christine indicated. I'm going to include PowerPoint and go in and out of um, using it. And I thought I would start uh, by inviting you to pray. You're all on mute. And uh, if you hear your voice, please do mute <laughs> um, so that we don't have the cacophony of uh, all of the various voices coming in. And you're welcome to pray or not pray. And uh, if you do pray, you're welcome to pray out loud or to yourself. 
I actually recommend that you pray out loud with me the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. One of the dynamics that I experienced uh, at the beginning of my journey in uh, recovery and started in 1984, thanks to my wife, Mary, who went up to the retreat center for a day of recollection. Um, it was right next to our house and uh, she just went there. We both have background as uh, the tradition of Catholicism and there's a group of nuns that own and run the retreat center. And she went up there for a day of uh, retreat because we were having problems in our family. Uh, we didn't know that those problems were caused by our respective alcoholism. We didn't know anything about that. So she went up there and did a, a, a day's retreat with a group of women. And uh, it just so happened that uh, one of the senior leaders of the retreat center, a nun herself, <clears throat> uh, was giving a one-day retreat for women alcoholics. Mary didn't know that that was the room she was in, and that's what she heard, and that began her journey. So we're forever grateful both to the retreat center uh, and to the recovery journey. The real uh, thing that she learned and I learned is that it's really important to have a question. You'll experience that with me throughout our time together. We'll ask a question and then we'll get some information. It's really important to have accurate information that's based on experience. But if you only get information, nothing happens. It's really important to take some action. And the question was, what is your relationship with alcohol? And she looked back at her history in the light of the information that was being shared in that particular meeting for a half a day. And she saw that she had a problem with alcohol. She didn't call herself an alcoholic right away, but she saw for the very first time because she had been given the correct question in the milieu of prayer and in the milieu of good information. And she wrote out some things that allowed her to begin her journey and she had an experience. I have a problem with alcohol, now what do I do? You see the dynamic there? And quite frankly, my experience is that that dynamic never changes. I will be asking you to ask yourself questions. Please be assured that there is no right or wrong answer. There's only your answer, your consciousness, your feelings, your awareness, your experience, and uh, be faithful to that. Don't try to have Herb's experience or Herb's answers. Have integrity. Stay connected to your own thoughts and your own feelings and your own experience, especially your experience. Einstein said the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. Oh, that's so brilliant. And you'll hear me say things like that, either quoting other people or coming up with wisdom sayings that have developed in my own journey. Succinct 
phrases and or sentences that capture deep wisdom. I cannot fix my mind with my broken mind. Any solution my broken mind comes up with will have a flaw in it by necessity. And I'm asking you today to commit to an attitude of setting aside your current knowledge, setting aside your current experience, setting aside your current expectations, and knowing that you can't do that. I've found that underneath most of what we think about and talk about is a, a, a component of powerlessness. I don't, I can be willing to set aside, but I don't have the power to set aside. I'm not even sure what it means and what needs to be set aside. So I developed a prayer. A prayer to ask for spiritual intervention. And I ask you to ask yourself. Are you willing to be open in your heart and in your mind? Are you willing to have your knowledge and feelings and awareness and experience up till this very moment set aside for you and to be taken to a place that you don't even know exists? Uh, and, and I'm not being poetic and I'm not being mysterious. I am actually capturing my own experience as I look back over my shoulder and my journey. Now, this didn't happen all at once, certainly not the first day or the first year or the first 10 years in recovery. It was a process and some of that will seep out in our conversation today. But the history is not important. The attitude is, I am willing to have the spirit, whatever that means, the energy of the universe, enter into my mind and my heart with a crowbar and open it up. I give it an invitation and I give it permission. And I capture that in this prayer. Please join me. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and you, for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. Some more questions. These are for your reflection. There's no right or wrong answer. There's just your reaction to the question. And it's good if you read it and think about it and reflect on it in your heart. It's actually going to be better if you have a writing instrument and uh, some paper or your laptop where you can actually write out a word or a phrase that captures your thought, your reflection, and your answer to these questions. Where is my life not working? Well, I thought this was about sponsorship, Herb. Yeah, it is. But here you are present for some reason. You've been selected to be here. Thousands of people heard about this workshop. Many inquired about it. 
many registered for it, but you're the ones that showed up. It's because you have a very special invitation. I don't use that casually, lightly. I do believe that you have received an invitation from the universe, from the spirit, to enable you to show up today. Where is my life not working? How effective have my efforts been up to this point in having my life the way I want it? Do I really want my life to change? What changes would I like? And I think the biggest question and the way I conclude my morning practice of meditation is this question. What is the invitation? What is the invitation today? What is the invitation for this event? What is the invitation for my life? Short-term, long-term, it's a fabulous question. What is the invitation? Now you can make up any story you want about God or spirit or the universe or energy or nature or a power other than yourself. In fact, the big book encourages you to make up your story. Don't adopt the book's story, any books. Don't adopt your religious tradition story. Don't adopt your parents' story or your sponsor's story or your therapist's story or not Herb's story. That's not the point here. This is an invitation for you to ask some questions so that you can either confirm your story or challenge your story and reframe your story. What is the invitation? Take a moment to reflect in that milieu of set aside. One of my teachers is Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, a Catholic priest, a Franciscan religious priest. And he said, the secret to transformation is to ask a question and hold it in the milieu of prayer and allow the asked but unanswered question to percolate so that in the milieu of prayer, the spirit can carry you to a new experience, new information, new knowledge, and a place that you didn't suspect was even available, an experience that you've never had before. That's all possible today. This is a, certainly a presentation, a workshop even, on sponsorship, but it's going to be in the form of a retreat, a mini retreat. I'm asking you to ask yourself some questions in the milieu of prayer. I'm going to give you some information and then some more questions. I was exposed to a poem four decades ago by Rumi. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a fool, shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not 
is a child, teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep, wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is wise, follow him. We're talking about sponsorship. Most of the spiritual teachers in any tradition or no tradition at all talk about three components to human development and or the spiritual life. They're not always the same in people's understanding and vocabulary. I do believe in the reality they are both the same. There are three components to the human journey or to the spiritual journey. One, of course, is a path. To have a defined way of living, a defined path. The next is a teacher. To have a guide, a mentor, a coach. A therapist. Uh, an accountability partner, a good friend. We use the term today for our time together of sponsor. So we have a path and we have a sponsor. And the third component is a community. Well, today I'll talk very little bit about the path, although I'll weave in some of my reflections and understanding of the 12 step path. And I'll talk a little bit about the community and the fellowship that supports us but not very much. The focus is really going to be on the teacher. Now, many in the 12-step rooms avoid or resist that term teacher, and that's okay too. You understand the context of my use of that term teacher. A person who knows something that's real and true has an experience as the result of that knowledge and has some competency in communicating it. One of the models that I adopted early on in my attempt to help large groups of people when I started doing my workshops 25 years ago was the Maslow hierarchy of needs. And over time, I had to take Maslow's name off of it because I changed it in terms of my understanding and my nomenclature, my vocabulary. And it's really important for you to understand my understanding of human development in the context of this conversation about sponsorship. Who are we as human beings? Well, of course, physical, that's the baseline. The challenge here, and you can read the words on the screen, air, water, food, and sleep. The challenge I would ask you to challenge yourself with is, do you get enough sleep? Well, what's enough, Herb? Seven and a half to nine hours consistently on a daily basis. That's a real challenge today with the technology that we have, with the screen time that we have, with the pressures that we have, and the responsibilities that we have. And yet, if you're sleep deprived, you're going to compensate in some unhealthy way, overeating, over addiction, 
overworking, over anger, over fear. Sleep deprivation is how they break down the psyche of prisoners of war so that they're vulnerable. Do you get enough sleep? There's no right or wrong answer, but the science is in. Rare exception. People who would be outside of the parameter of seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. Then we have that emotional development, that psychological development, and self-esteem is huge, especially in the 12-step rooms. Low self-esteem. I read a book on self-esteem. The book was wonderful. The one thing that it came out from my sense was that, that it said, if you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. If you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. And that's what we're talking about here in terms of taking some right action. The next obviously is the social component, our relationship with people. We're social animals. In most of the psychology, the personal development is to independence and then interdependence. And it's the balance between independence and interdependence that is the rite of passage to adulthood. A rite of passage that some cultures historically have formalized. We haven't in the West. We have some forms of a rite of passage, perhaps graduating from high school or graduating from college or going into the military or going into some particular educational training program, or perhaps some rite of passage in your religious tradition. I consider the 12 steps as a rite of passage where the human being becomes truly human, where the human being becomes truly spiritual and integrates both their humanity and their spirituality. Maslow calls that self-actualization. I call it the development of conscience. Notice the word there, it's conscience. That is an awareness of principles that I operate my life on. And an awareness that when I violate those principles, I go against those principles, I am disturbed and I have an opportunity to correct it. Again, that's maturity, that's adulthood. Taking full responsibility for our behavior and the consequences of that behavior. Consciousness, I call self-realization. And this is where I begin to deviate from Maslow. And that's why I took his name off of the chart. I, 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 I adapted and adopted the chart to reflect what I consider to be the developmental, the organic developmental process of the 12 steps. You might recognize self-actualization and conscience as step 10 self-realization and consciousness as step 11. And what we're really talking about today is the final apex of this triangle 
of other-centeredness, the turning from self-centeredness in the first step to other-centeredness in steps 10, 11, and 12. Other in the best of senses with a capital O. God is we don't understand it. A higher power as we don't understand it. And that turning to others in the 12th step. A sense of compassion, a sense of helping others for the pure reason and motive of helping them with no potential benefit to myself. Look up the word altruism sometime if you want. It comes as close as I've been able to get to a definition of unconditional love. Altruism. Doing something for somebody with no possible benefit to yourself. Providing a benefit to somebody else with no possible benefit to yourself. Altruism. A wonderful synonym for, I believe, unconditional love, which is the ideal, of course. None of us can be unconditional because by very nature we're material. We're human and we never transcend our humanity. But we hold the ideal, the vision that we want to make progress on a daily basis. And that's how Bill phrases it, doesn't he, on page 60. We're not saints and we never will be saints. But we will make progress because we've given up and released any aspiration, any delusion that we can be perfect. Progress, not perfection. So are we human beings seeking a spiritual experience or are we spiritual beings seeking a human experience? Well, it's a great question. I took it into meditation. As I do all of those kinds of questions, those conundrums, questions that seem to not have a solution. Am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience? I studied to be a Catholic priest for seven years. I left in 1964 a monastery after seven years of silence because I didn't find what I was looking for. But it's not their fault. I was very immature. And I do believe that I was having to a beginning of my alcoholism. Or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? I went from there to studying psychology, thinking I wanted to, if I couldn't save your soul, I would at least help heal your mind, your psyche. And I left that because I didn't find what I was looking for. Am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? And after months of meditation and reflection like I'm doing right now, the answer was yes. I believe they're synonyms in the broadest of sense. Spiritual for me means relationship, relationship with the world relationship with myself and relationship with others. You can give it another connotation about 
divinity and sacred and God and spirit great. The word itself, spirit, comes from the Greek word spiros, S-P-I-R-O-S, which is breath. Wonderful, the breath of God. In the Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew scripture, the Torah, it says, God made humans in God's image and likeness. God made them male and female. It's a brilliant insight by the shepherd on the hill who might have been writing this one midnight while he was watching the flock in the light of the moon. I don't know that that's the history of it, but it was somebody who was reflecting like we're reflecting. God made humans. The word is Adam, A-D-A-M. And in Aramaic, Adam is the word for earth and dirt. It's not the first name. It's not the name of the first man. That's just part of a story that was developed afterwards. God made humans out of the dirt, out of the earth. God made them in God's image and likeness. What does that mean? Perhaps the two things that made us specifically human, a mind that knows and a will that makes free decisions. Critical components in the 12-step process, as I'll show you later on. An organic development, a methodology that is specifically geared to human development and transformation. God made humans in God's image and likeness. God made them male and female. It's a poetry. It's not science. It's a story. It's not necessarily fact or reality. Everybody approaches it with their own attitude and their own conclusions. And that's the beauty of the 12-step process. We have no dogma, we have no rules, we have no regulations. In fact, Bill said one time in relationship to the traditions, we don't need any rules or regulations or laws. There's only two disciplines in AA. There's only two disciplines. One is God and one is alcohol. You're either going for one or you're going for the other. There's the ultimate value proposition for us in terms of our own development, freedom from addiction and freedom from unmanageability. As well as considering as part of our development, helping other people. There's only two disciplines in Alcoholics Anonymous. One is God and one is alcohol. You're either going for one or you're going for the other. My favorite image is a dimmer switch. The dimmer switch goes on at a very low voltage, but it produces a little bit of light at that low voltage. And as you turn the dimmer switch up a click at a time, the light gets brighter. But if you rest on your laurels, 
you don't have your shoulder to the dimmer switch pushing it forward, it is hardwired to go backwards. And as we rest on our laurels, we rest on yesterday's accomplishments or even today's accomplishments, that dimmer switch slips back one click. Hardly noticeable, but it diminishes the light just a little bit. Too subtle for us to evaluate that day. But it's the accumulated clicks going forward that produces accumulated light. And it's the accumulated clicks going backwards that produces the accumulated darkness. And in the light we recover and in the darkness we relapse. In the light we have joy and happiness and in the darkness we have misery and suffering. These are the choices. Eventually we have to ask ourselves, how free do we want to be? The ultimate question, how free do we want to be? This is the model I use for the human being, as I just mentioned. We have a body that doesn't distinguish us from a rock or a carrot or a gorilla. What does distinguish us is that we have a mind that thinks and a will that decides. These are critical pieces of information and vocabulary in understanding the step process and in understanding sponsorship. What is a sponsor? How do I sponsor? What is a sponsee? What are the expectations? I'm going to take you into basically three sections, the historical development of the concept, what the concept is as I understand it today, and then what do we do with it going forward. The real problem is addiction, of course. That's most of us are here for some reason of addiction. That's the problem that we've had. Many people talk about the spiritual side of the program. Carl Jung was the first one that suggested that Roland Hazard find a spiritual solution to the problem. Roland Hazard was a drunk. He was a very rich drunk. He went to Switzerland for a year. He got therapy from Carl Jung, probably a daily therapeutic relationship for a whole year. And uh, he didn't drink during that year. At the end of that year, he thought he was fixed. He went home. He got drunk. He came back to Carl Jung and he said, what's up with that? I just spent a lot of money and a lot of time. I had success while I'm here and I failed when I left. And Carl Jung just shook his head and he says, yeah, I thought you were different because you were really smart, you were really committed and uh, you had enough money to support the resources for sobriety. But our, our, our community of psychiatrists have never been successful with alcoholics. And Roland said, well, what do I do? And Carl Jung said, find a spiritual experience. 
And Roland said, well, great, I'll go back to church. And Carl Jung said, no, don't do that. I didn't say that. I said, find a spiritual experience, not go back to church. Well, with very little direction, Roland went back to church, the cathedral, Episcopal Cathedral in New York. And fortunately, in the basement was the Oxford group. And Frank Buckman, a Lutheran minister, had started the Oxford group. They had six steps. And Roland worked those six steps. Now, the Oxford group was a Christian fundamentalist evangelical organization. It wasn't interested in alcohol or drug addicts at all. They actually resisted any membership to those kind of people. But since Roland was a very influential person in their geographical area, they wanted his center of influence, his sphere of influence. So they tolerated him and said, well, maybe if you work our steps, you also will have the transformation that we've experienced in our religious efforts. And that's exactly what happened. He got free of alcohol. Well, he reached out to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher reached out to Bill and Bill reached out to Bob. You probably know that history, some of it at least. Bill went into the Oxford group in an effort to deal with his alcohol problem. Most of the time he went to those meetings after drinking. He not necessarily was he drunk, some of the times he was. He was even drunk when he went into the hospital in 1934 in December. But fortunately, in that hospital, Towns Hospital, there was a psychiatrist that ran the unit for drug and alcohol rehabilitation. In those days, it was very awkward. Nobody knew what they were doing. But Silkworth had a very kind and compassionate attitude. And he developed the theory that alcoholics have a fatal disease. Once they start, they cannot stop. He called it an allergy that produces the phenomenon of craving. And once they stop, they cannot stay stopped. And he said, there's something wrong with your mind, which Bill elaborated later on in the big book as an obsession and a delusion. So those are the six steps of the Oxford group as articulated in the big book on page 263 in one of the stories. And you can see the similarity between the Oxford group steps and what eventually became the 12 steps. Bill left the Oxford group in 1937. He got sober in December of 1934. He didn't find Bob until June of 1935. Bob was already in the Oxford group. Bob had been in the Oxford group for two and a half years. He went to a weekly meeting. He prayed. They meditated. They had a discussion. And for two and a half years on a weekly basis after the meeting, Bob went home and got drunk. Because he thought the problem was a knowledge problem or a moral problem or a willpower problem all of which it's not, of course, but that was his thinking, which prevented him from having the experience of complete deflation because he thought there was something that he could do about it. 
Well, there's a wonderful history in back of some of the things that are in the big book. In May, June of 1935, Bill is six months sober and he's been trying to get somebody sober and he hasn't gotten anybody sober. He's been reaching out, going to the missions, going to the hospitals, going to the asylums, going to the jails, going to the bars even. And he's no one, no one has gotten sober and he's on his mission now to go to Akron to do a business deal. And he's while he's packing, he and Lois are talking and Bill is complaining that he probably got it wrong in the hospital. He misinterpreted the message that he received in his mystical mountaintop experience. He said, I got it wrong, obviously, because I've been unsuccessful for six months. I've been trying for six months and nobody got sober. And Lois just looks at him and paused a moment in our history. And she said, Bill, you're sober. And Bill got it. Oh, my God. I'm not supposed to get them sober. That's the mechanism for keeping me sober. I'm saying it this way so that you can see the origin of the spirit of sponsorship. It wasn't about getting them sober. It was about keeping himself sober. Well, he ran over to the hospital to tell Dr. Silk with this new intuition that he received. And Dr. Silkwer said, boy, that's right on the money. Tell them about your experience with alcohol and knock off talking to them about your flash, your hot flash, your mountaintop experience. Nobody wants to hear about your mystical spiritual experience. Everybody can relate to your experience with alcohol and now your freedom from it. That's what was the preparation to go to, uh, to um, Akron. And so he's in Akron and his business thing fails and he's in the hotel, you know the story, and he's broke and he's defl deflated and depressed. And his partners had said, stay there and try again on Monday after the weekend if you can't resurrect the business deal. So Bill is there, he's broke, he's lonely, he's depressed. He hears all of the wonderful stuff going on in the bar and he's tempted just to go in and have a seven up. But then he realizes that's just a delusion again, a seduction of alcohol. So he begins to reach out and call. And eventually he connects to Henrietta Cyberling. Now the backstory on that is two weeks earlier in the Oxford group meeting in which Dr. Bob was, two weeks earlier, Henrietta, a manipulative person, all right, a good quali qualifier for Al-Anon. She really did want to help Bob. But what she said was to the group, let's each one of us reveal something we've never revealed before, and we'll all pray about it. And everybody went around the room, and Bob revealed his problem with alcohol. He assumed nobody knew about it. Everybody kind of did. But they said, Henrietta said, would you like us to pray with you? And he said, I would like that. So they got down on their knees and they prayed a prayer for Bob for his healing. 
When Bill called Henrietta two weeks later, Bill said, I'm a rum hound from New York and I need to talk to somebody who has a drinking problem, perhaps in the Oxford group. Henrietta said, <laughs> we've been expecting you. I mean, what kind of faith is that? Brings me to tears to even think of that moment. I've been to the Goodyear Mansion there. I think it's the Goodyear Mansion and the, uh, the gatehouse. It's a fabulous experience if you ever get to Akron. And of course, the rest is history. Bill met Bob. Bob was going to give them 15 minutes. They stayed there for five hours discussing. Bob had one small relapse after that and stayed sober till 1950 when he died. Alcoholics Anonymous calls June 10th, 1935, the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's when Bob got sober. That was the day that Bob had his last drink. Four years later, Bill wrote the big book. Which codified his experience of applying the six steps and he developed over time a three part program with 36 principles in 1939 he published the big book that had the 12 steps. This is the process of recovery. In 1950, the first conference of the International Gathering of AA approved the 12 traditions. That's where Bill had coined the phrase, we don't need any rules or regulations. We're either going for God or we're going for alcohol. There's only one discipline, that dimmer switch image, moving into the light or moving into the darkness and there's no resting place. The 12 traditions are principles for guiding us for unity. And then five years later, Bill developed the 12 principles for operation of a nonprofit spiritual organization, which was ratified in 1955 by that Congress. Now we're going to be looking at the steps and the component of the steps. The 12 steps are, as I mentioned earlier, the first stage of the rocket launch that Bill refers to on page 25, that rocket launch into orbit around the light, that first stage is a relationship with power to be defined by you. The second stage of the rocket launch is a relationship with yourself, a rigorous, grueling, grinding process that if done with the direction of unpacking the big book instructions will penetrate the unconscious and reveal your beliefs and your motives and the impact on other people. And the third stage of the rocket launch 
in this turning, this commitment to turning from my self-centeredness to other-centeredness, steps eight and nine, where we go out to change our attitude and our own behavior, as well as to repair the damage to other people. But the best kept secret in the rooms is that we have a way of life. And Bill says it very clearly as we enter into step 10, he says we enter into the world of the spirit. Right now we're entering the world of the spirit as we finish step nine and enter into step 10. And he said, we commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We commenced this way of living. Way of living is a code for 10, 11, and 12. He repeats a, that phrase 20 times in the big book. And it says, we entered the world of the spirit. Well, where have we been? We've been in the world of self. And our commitment in step three is to turn. To turn from our self-centeredness to other-centeredness, other with a capital O and other with a small o. That's the spiritual coin as I see it. As I mentioned earlier, the two things that make us specifically human are our will and our mind. These are all relevant background contextual uh, components of coming to an understanding of sponsorship, at least as, as I'm presenting it and, and understanding it and have experienced it. My will is the ability for me to make a decision. My mind is my ability to know something and to know that I know. What I have found is that all of the even steps are knowing steps. Step two, naming the higher power. Step four, Naming the obstacles to my relationship with that higher power. Step six, naming the defects that come from those obstacles. Step eight, naming the harms that come from those defects. Step 10, rinse and repeat. Because when I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. It's a spot check inventory. In contrast, all of the odd steps are decision and action steps. As the, one of the principal resources for the development of the Oxford group was the letter to James in the Christian scripture. And it says, faith without works is dead. Faith, a belief in a power other than myself, without action, is dead. And that's incorporated, of course, many times in the big book. The man who took me through the steps in 1988 said, willingness without action is fantasy. He put it on steroids. I told him I was willing, but I just didn't have time. I was willing to take the action of finishing my ninth step, but my life was so hectic and busy right now because I'm experiencing the promises. And he said, willingness without action is fantasy. He had a way of penetrating the darkness and opening the curtain so that the light would come through. He never told me what to do, but he always prompted me to ask really good questions. He always shared with me his experience so that I could model my thinking and my feelings and my experience based on his and based on the outcomes that he had.
Step one is to concede that I have no choice. Step three is to make a choice, to have this relationship and to turn, to turn from my self-centeredness to other-centeredness. And my experience is I made a decision to turn and the outcome was that I was turned. Hear the difference in step five to fully disclose, in step seven to understand that I'm powerless over those defects and to pray for their removal. And in step nine, to change both my behavior and to repair the damage. One is about me, step nine, amending my behavior changing. And the other, step nine, amending the damage that I've done. How did I diminish other people? What was the negative impact on them of my behavior, repairing that damage. So I'm going to take a pause here now. That's a, a lot of context and a lot of history and a lot of buildup. Um, so uh, if you have questions or comments or concerns about what I've said, not necessarily about sponsorship yet, because we haven't really gotten into the heart of it, but about what I have said or what I haven't said, if you have any questions or concerns. Hi, Herb. Uh, I noticed you posed the, the situation suggesting that addiction is the problem. So I very much now in my own mind have come to the conclusion that is not my problem. My problem was always will, self-will. Yes. Addiction allowed me to live in that situation for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and in fact, you've been exposed to my teaching quite a bit, and you know that, and we're going to have a slide on it later on, that unmanageability is really the problem. And again, that's the best kept secret in the rooms, the lack of understanding of the second half of the first step, unmanageability, which is that self-centeredness, which are those bedevilments, and we're not cured, he says in step 10. We're not cured of that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but uh, I'm so glad that you gave us a, a bigger perspective on that because although addiction is a problem and it's usually the precipitating problem that brings us into a 12-step recovery or into therapy or some attempt to re resolve the problem of addiction, addiction is really the symptom of a problem. It's not the problem. Hold the mystery in the milieu of prayer. And um, you're talking about power other than yourself. What is the invitation? That part of the talk. Sure. And I wrote down, sometimes when I'm doing that, I'm also a daily uh, quiet time observer. Um, when I'm anxious, uh, my thoughts will race and I feel like I get like all sorts of different answers. Ping, 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 ping. Mm -hmm. And um, this might not be the time to discuss this, but I was just wondering about, you know, slowing down the discernment. I know we talked about that last month, but, um, you know, this is where I think I don't want to believe everything I think. And when somebody says to me, oh, God talks to me, I'm like, uh, I, just, I don't want to believe everything I think because there's some darkness in there and it, and it, and it repeats. It's on repeat. Yeah. And um, anyway, just wanted to 
throw that out there. Uh, it, it's a very excellent question. It's very relevant to the, this discussion here about sponsorship, which is about consciousness, which is about compassion and awareness. Other people need help. As the flight attendant says, put your own mask on first before you help anybody else, because then you can help them put their mask on. And so it's a very, uh, step 11 does come before step 12. And the whole point of the step process is awakening, is awakening, becoming conscious. I was thinking as you were talking, an image came to me. I live close to the Malibu fires, well, an hour away. But when fires are in the hills of Malibu, it's devastating, terrible, ravaging the environment and the people in it. But fire in my fireplace is very comforting. Fire in my stove and oven is very productive in terms of my eating, etc. And the difference is fire contained and fire not contained. And that's relevant to meditation and the mind. And the whole point of meditation in the big book is to provide contained thinking. Bill says in the morning, Upon awakening, we ask God to direct our thinking. The man who helped me unpack the big book so simply said, it's a prayer herb, God, please direct my thinking. Then, yeah, yeah, I know it's that simple. Then I begin thinking, now here's what's not in the big book, but which was his experience and interpretation that unlocked the door for me to understand meditation. Me who was a monk in silence for seven years, wouldn't you think I'd know something? No, you would have thought I didn't at all. He said, we ask God to direct our thinking. Then we begin thinking, trusting that the thoughts we get are the message in answer to the prayer. And that's how we're containing and directing our, we're not allowing our, our thinking to hijack us. So distraction is in fact the bane of every meditator's existence. The Buddhists call it the monkey mind. But we, we learn over time, either with a mantra or with a breath or with some other sort of a technical pro, uh, 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 resource uh, to manage our thinking. It's very relevant to the same with regard to step 10, which is about our emotions, our disturbing and our instincts gone awry. Instincts are survival mechanisms. Emotions are those survival instincts uh, that are connected to our chemical system through the limbic brain, all right? These are all survival, wonderful, one, but emotions and instincts out of control, non-contained, are what the addict experiences that savages their lives. And step 10 is about containing our emotions and our instincts, managing our emotions in the limbic system, managing our instincts in our biological system by our cortex, that will and that uh, mind, that knowing, that knowing and that willing uh, that's coming from the cortex to manage our emotions and instincts and have self-regulation. So this whole thing is about, and that's why I love the Maslow development. It's an organic development of the human nature going from the little animals that we are with instincts to the bigger animals we are with emotions to the real animal that we are, a spiritual being that is a human being to manage all of that in consciousness. 
And that's what steps 10, 11, and 12 are for. And that's why I created or modified the Maslow uh, hierarchy in the way I did with conscience as the containment for our instincts and emotions, consciousness as the way to feed our mind and uh, compassion with a way to have a distribution considering I'm a channel, I'm the, I'm the resource of God to have hands and feet in the world to help other people. I'm glad you asked that question because I think that really puts a, what we've already talked about into a nice big context. Does that help you though? And does it, it does, it does. That? It helps me about the, the fire metaphor really helps me. And yeah. 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 It's yeah. about, yeah. It's about being empowered. So many people say, oh no, I'm just so powerless over people, places, and things. No, you're ignorant and you haven't really thought things through. I'm, so, I'm very direct. I'm not, I try not I'm to sorry. be rude. <laughs> <laughs> people are just mad, bad, 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 because they hear good things and then they repeat them without knowing what they're saying. All right. We're not powerless over people, places, and things unless we're irresponsible and immature. The whole point of this process and this program is to be empowered. And I take full responsibility for my thinking and full responsibility for my actions 100%. You, you pressed my button. Right on. <laughs> Keep coming back. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Thank you so Thank much. You, Herb. Thank you. You're right. I feel kind of rudderless in a way without a concept that I used to have that was blown up in my through my actions. Sure. And so um, I, I, I guess uh, that would be the more concise question. So if you're, you're talking about- How do I- Yeah, you're, you're talking about steps two and three. Yes. And yeah. uh, there, I, there's, there's a, a free resource to you on my website, which would be the recordings of my weekly uh, workshops. There's 51 there, 51 recordings go to the recordings on step two, there's probably two or three, and step three, there's probably at least two. Okay. And listen to those, and if you want to see it in writing, my second book is 12 Steps to Spiritual Awakening, and okay. chapters two and three will help you understand at least my understanding of the big book and the process that I went through to come to a decision about that. And as I mentioned earlier, I studied to be a Catholic priest and I found that that vocabulary and my knowledge and my experience up till 10 years of sobriety was the very impediment mm -hmm. to my relationship with the mystery. Mm -hmm. It got in my way, but the big book led me through a process that parted the curtain. And for the very first time in 1994, I was able to have a conscious decision about a relationship with a power that I chose. Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds uh, good. Yeah. It, it is life-changing. These yeah. steps, and that's why I do this work. And, and, and there's a precision to it, but there's no training for it. So it <laughs> depends on, yeah, who you're working with and what level of knowledge they have and what is their experience. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. You said your step guide did not tell you what to do. 
but he helped you learn how to ask the right questions and he modeled correct behavior. That's it. That was basically it. Okay, good. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where's that? <laughs> good. Okay, thank you. My question, Herb, actually talking today and you're speaking about altruism and I realized that there's nothing altruistic about me, not a single thing. I do many nice things for people and it has a self-centered motive in every sense. Sure. Um, and um, in the traditions of my particular fellowship, I'm, I've just been like eligible to sponsor. So I'm working with someone. So I guess I'm, a, and currently I'm in one of your workshops, I'm on step two and I'm, I'm assuming that part of the journey of getting to the end will be to be in a position where I have a transformation, where I can be more altruistic. In the meantime, how do I act that way? Or what, what, how do I sit with this like conundrum? Because also the thing is, is that I'm helping someone so I can stay. Um, but so you have mixed motives. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to the human race. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a, a different example, but maybe it'll illustrate this from my own personal experience. After three years of doing workshops, way back in the late 90s, I'm in therapy and I'm really discovering I'm, uh, I have a character defect and personality disorder called narcissism. And there's like nine characteristics of them, none of which is very complimentary. <laughs> and and um, so I became aware of that. And I went to my spiritual director who knew nothing about 12 steps. And um, I told him a little bit about the journey that I had had in terms of transformation. And he got it right away, very bright and spiritual man. And <clears throat> I said, so... I'm now aware that I have this tendency, this character defect of narcissism, and I really enjoy the workshops and the uh, compliments that I get and the feeling of uh, 30 people in a room looking up, watching me and admiring me. I kind of like all of that, you know? Um, should I stop doing that because it could foster and undermine my spirit, foster my narcissism and undermine my spiritual life? He said, Herb, you do need to be concerned. Yes, you do need to be vig vigilant. Yes, but never let your concern get in the way of your helping other people. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah. What, see, yeah. Now, see, that's the containment I talked about earlier. Yes, yeah. I have this tendency, but yeah. I'm, I'm working in a program to have a relationship with power that builds a container for that tendency. And my own experience is on a scale of one to 10, I was a seven and a half. And now by outside evaluation, I'm about a two and a half. That's pretty good. It's irremediable by therapy and medication. A, a good clinical psychologist has given me this information. It's irremediable by therapy and medication but he said obviously it's been diminished because of your spiritual commitment and action so yeah. you can have mixed motives but you put them in a container so that you have a priority 
And then the key here, and, and that's where sponsorship comes in, is accountability, that you talk about it. If you're concerned about it, you talk about it. Yeah, okay. And even if you're not concerned about it, you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's super yeah. helpful. Thanks, Liz. Always good questions. Thank you so much. Um, now, Mary, please. Hi, Herb. Um, my question is about um, multiple. Oh, yes multiple addictions for those of us multiply addicted right it's taken me a long time to get to a place of saying you know where is my life not working and what and and to really right. i don't even know really quite what my question is but well no i think it I, underneath the question is if you have multiple addictions do you have multiple sponsors and multiple programs and the answer is yeah probably uh, depending if they're critically different in how substantial the addictions are, I have a lot of men who mm, get sober in AA and they're sober 10 or 20 years and they are not as rigorous about their way of living in the practice of 10, 11, and 12 and they end up with a pornography addiction or they end up with a food addiction or they end up with a work addiction or an anger addiction they haven't really addressed the problem, which is the spiritual malady. They just addressed the problem, which is the addiction. And so to get right to your question, if you're in a substance abuse program like alcohol or drugs or food, you might need to go to Al-Anon if you have a relationship addiction, codependency, adult child of an alcoholic, that kind of control and manipulation. And you know of many people that have uh, two sponsors and two programs. Now, it's obviously better if you have one sponsor that's in both programs, but sometimes that's not going to be possible. Or you're in AA and you're in uh, an eating disorder program because the substances are so different. The eating disorder programs, there's probably about eight different ones, each of them with their own protocols, but the eating disorder is so um, oh, nasty. It's just nasty. And um, it, it may be the, the most problematic addiction that there is because we do have to eat and everybody's body chemistry is, is unique and different so that you can't have it black and white normally. Um, so you probably need to be guided by somebody with experience. The whole point of it is to be connected to somebody with a very practical experience with that particular addiction. I tried Al-Anon at 10 years of sobriety. After about six months, I thought, well, I better go back and really dive into my own AA program, which resolved it for me because once again, I found out I was the problem. It wasn't her at all. So I didn't need the Al-Anon program. I needed my own program so that I would in fact uh, have a, an additional awakening that would contain my narcissism, insensitivity and, and, and et cetera like that. Does that make So I've had only one sponsor, but I know people with two. I'm not sure that multiple beyond that is very productive because of the time and also the level of communication and, and the ability to play some games there, like using mom and dad to, against one another type thing. Does that make sense? Thank you. That makes sense. You answered all my questions without me even asking it. So thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm glad. You know, as a sponsor, uh, how do you or can you help a sponsee find a how higher power? You know, oh, when they keep no. oh, what do you think the steps are for? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, th this is, I guess, around food addiction. I deal with people but, that are just no, no. powerless over food. I'm powerless over food. That's why I can't get abstinence. Like, who's, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, no, no, no. I understand the conundrum. Yeah. But I don't think you're applying the conundrum correctly here. So okay. tell me a little bit more about the question. Um, I guess my question, I have a sponsee currently who I realize that she just, I think she just doesn't believe that there's a power greater than the food. All right. The food well, but, but in chapter four, it's a very gentle approach. And the very first, well, one of the first questions that Bill asks on page 47 is, do you believe? And if she has problems with that and doesn't, are you willing to believe? See, he, he knows us. And there's the safety net. Well, did you get your head kicked in by your food problem and you're powerless over it? Uh, yeah. Have you ever been able to find any other human power that's been and resource that's been able to help you? Uh, no. Well, I know you don't believe in a power other than yourself, but are you willing to? Gotcha. And he says that's the cornerstone. He says as soon as you say that you're willing to believe. See, there's the role of a sponsor. And you're asking such a wonderful question. How can I help her? Right. You can help her by going through the big book and helping her find the questions. And then don't give her the answer. It's up to her to tease the answer out of asking the question in a milieu of openness and willingness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yep. Thank okay. you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, my sponsor just moved away and I've always really believed firmly in having my your sponsor and sponsees be local. Yes. And I just am curious on your thoughts of that with the age of, you know, COVID and zoom being available. Um, I'd love your feedback. Yeah. I, I also believe in local sponsorship primarily so that you could sit periodically, I recommend once a month, um, once you've established a good relationship and you finish the steps, uh, a once a month kind of relationship where you sit down, have a cup of coffee or lunch or dinner or something like that, eyeball to eyeball. Um, my sponsor moved out of town and it was probably 10 years uh, uh, 15, I had a relationship with him for about 15 years. Then he moved and I kept that relationship for about 10 years um, on a long distance basis, which worked very well because um, we'd established a really good line of communication. But I did feel eventually that I needed uh, local sponsorship and I, I now have a local sponsor. Uh, does that answer the question? It does. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Good. All right, so if you can, we'll hold the questions until the, the next time we pause. The original concept of sponsorship was um, they 
they paid the hospital bill. They guaranteed payment of the hospital bill when people went into the hospital. This is in the early time, 1935 to probably 1940, 1941. And uh, meetings were very underground. You had to be sponsored into a meeting because you there was no directory. There was no way of knowing where the meetings were. There was very little word of mouth, of course, and very little technology for communication. So you had to really kind of like the speakeasy era, Sam sent me kind of thing so that you could get into the room. Um, chapter seven, when Bill wrote it in 1939, really is a blueprint for working with others. That's the type of the, the title of the chapter. And if you really want to have a good experience, read chapter seven with a highlighter and with an ink pen, two things, highlight what is interesting to you, but with an ink pen, mark the process steps that he gives us there. I do that once a year and I change the numbers each year as I see new things, but he tells us what to do. Uh, find somebody, talk to somebody, ask them some questions, share your experience. He's very specific and precise in his direction in chapter seven. It's really the, the blueprint of working for others. At the same time, although the big book doesn't have the word sponsor in it, it refers regularly to people to help. In step three, the prayer itself encourages us to help others. And in the promises of step five, on page 75, it says we know God better. In step seven, it says so that we're useful to God and to others. In step nine, it, the promises talk about a benefit to others. In step 11, it's all about getting conscious contact so that we have power to help others. And in step 12, of course, I've already quoted the Christian scripture faith without works is dead, and my own step guide's interpretation of that willingness without action is fantasy. But on page 18, there is a profile, which I think comes as close without using the word sponsor, because that, again, that word is not in the book. But on page 18, he has in italics, the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. What's the essence of that? My sponsor's interpretation, and now mine, is that until you do a fourth and fifth step, you really are not going to be equipped to be a sponsor. Because he, he says, properly armed with facts about yourself. And then he goes on to give us a really nice profile. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty. So alcohol, or drugs, or food, or pornography, or relationships, or codependency. So that you can identify with the experience. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. He's got an understanding of the nature of his problem and the nature of the solution. That his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer. I think it was Augustine that was alleged to have said, wherever you are in the world, preach the good news. Of course, he's a Catholic bishop, a Catholic priest. 
He's talking about the gospel, which is called the good news. And he's talking about evangelization. But listen to the quote in, in the context of our work. Wherever you are in the world, preach the good news. If you have to use words, be the big book, be the role model. That's why I used that word uh, previously. The image that I have of a sponsor is a lantern. I'm not the light. I'm a lantern. And the light shines through me to the path that I walked so that you can walk that path in the light of my experience and have your own experience. I'm not here to give you Herb's experience, please. I want you to have your experience. I'm a lantern that stands by the path that shines the light, not me, shines the light, transmits the light. The St. Francis prayer, make me a channel on the path that I walk so that you can walk that path and have your own experience. That he has no whole attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful. When I really got in touch with that in meditation, the voice said, her drop the word to service for step 12. I don't use that word any longer. Drop the word service. The voice in me said it's too sophisticated. Use the word help because it has dirt in it. It has earth in it. You will get your hands dirty. You will get tired. You will be frustrated. Use the word help. Much more realistic and much simpler to embrace. That there are no, and then I became very conscious as I read and reread the big book, how many times that word, that four letter word, H-E-L-P, is used to express the turning that is an organic promise from my self-centeredness to truly wanting to help. Not just doing it because it acts contrary to my will, not doing it because somebody told me to do it, not doing it because it's the big book and my interpretation of step 12, no. Do it because it's an organic energy, an invitation to allow the grace and light in me that's been a gift for me to be a channel of it to you. That there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. Please, as sponsors, listen up. No lectures to be endured. We're not parents. We're not the police. We're not the orthodox enforcers. These are conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. A direct allusion to the miracles of Jesus in the Christian scripture. Miracles of healing. That's what everybody has experienced personally as they've been healed. And then as, in fact, they illuminate the path for others watching the healing that happens, which is, in fact, the spark that energizes all of us when we see the lights go on. Bill had sponsors. His first sponsor was Ebby. Ebby was the one that introduced him to the six steps of the Oxford group and the Oxford group itself. Ebby was the one on page 13 in the big book in Bill's story 
who took him through the steps on this second day of hospitalization. You can read it, page 13. And on page 14, Bill had his spiritual awakening, his spiritual mountaintop mystical experience. Third day of hospitalization. But Ebby didn't stay sober. Ebby cyclically got drunk. Fortunately, the last two years of his life, he was sober. He died in 1960. And anytime he was sober, Bill called him his sponsor. But really, he had several sponsors. Ed Dowling was a Catholic Jesuit priest who met Bill in 1940. And Bill engaged him as spiritual director for the next 20 years until Dowling died in 1960. Sam Shoemaker was the head of the Oxford group. He was an Episcopal priest who was the leader of the Oxford group when Bill met him. And Bill was so impressed with his spirituality that he actually asked Sam Shoemaker to write the 12 steps. And, and um, Sam refused to do that. He said, no, those need to be written by an alcoholic. Unfortunately for us, that was great advice. Dr. Tebow was a psychiatrist that Bill relied on not only for direction in terms of the psychological balance of the, of the big book and the fellowship of AA, but also he used him as a personal therapist, a psychiatrist who said, Bill got it right. The first nine steps are for the deflation of the ego at depth, but the ego has an uncanny way of regenerating itself. Why do I need a sponsor? Because I won't know that I don't know, and I won't see that I don't see. And if I have an accountability partner who loves me enough to tell me the truth and hurt my feelings, please hear all of that, loves me enough to tell me the truth and willing to hurt my feelings and risk a friendship, to tell me the truth. That's the person that I want to be as an accountability partner. And I have about three or four. I have a, an acknowledged dedicated sponsor. We meet once a month, we sit across a table and we have a conversation for an hour or two. I have a good friend, Dr. Alan Berger, who originally was my therapist. He was the one that identified the narcissism. And uh, he is a clinical psychologist with 49 years of sobriety. And we talk regularly, probably once a week, as friends, but transparent, very undefended and open. And I have a spiritual director I see probably once every three months now. I did on a once a month and originally a once a week basis, but it's about once every three months now, Jim Finley. He's not in a 12-step program, deeply spiritual man. You want to read some really good books on spirituality? Read Jim Finley, F-I-N-L-E-Y. He was a monk in a monastery in Gethsemane, a Trappist monk, when Thomas Merton was there. And Thomas Merton was his spiritual director for six years. That may or may not impress you. You may not know who Thomas Merton is or was. He died in 1968, but it, it impresses the hell out of me. He was in the monastery, a different one, at the same time I was. I just didn't have any relationship with any Merton. <laughs> um, on page 20, the big book says, we don't tell them what we think. We don't tell them what we wrote. We don't tell them what we talk about. It says, we tell them what we did. Page 20, we tell them what we did. And if you want what we have, do what we did and you'll get what we got. And what did we got? 
the promise of step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. The promise of the 12 steps is in step 12, a spiritual awakening. And on page 68, I ask people doing the fear inventory to turn a statement into a question. The statement is we are in the role to play the role God has assigned. And I ask them to turn it into a question. What is the role that God has assigned? The importance of the answer to that question is in the next sentence on page 68. What is the role that I have been assigned? And it says, just to the extent that we do, as we think God would have us and humbly rely on God, does God enable us to match calamity with serenity? Translate. You want contentment? Find out what your role is and do it. On page 102, more references to our destiny. It says, your job now is to be at the place where you may, may be of maximum helpfulness to others. I did a study on happiness as part of my own personal journey. And did you know that Harvard has an entire department on happiness? Um, it started uh, just after the positive psychology movement got started in the 90s, and I believe it's in the early 2000s. And I've read probably 10 of the books that came out of those studies and similar ones by positive psychology. It said, if you want to be happy, that's your primary goal, you never will be happy. Because happiness is not a product, it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of our relationship with reality, a meaning bigger than ourselves and our contribution to the humanity around us. Hear the simplicity of that. When Jesus asked the rabbi, the Jewish priest attorney, the, uh, he asked the rabbi or the, or the Pharisee, so what's, what, what's the game here? What's the rules? I'm paraphrasing. And the, rab, and the, uh, the Pharisee said, Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, wonderful. That's the test, the current testament, and I bring a new testament. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, same. And love your neighbor as God loves you. A different twist, maybe putting a little bit more on steroids, but certainly a different attitude. And what's the Buddhist say? The two prim primary principles are wisdom, that awareness and consciousness, and compassion, that service in helping other people. The same principles as Judaism and Christianity. And what are the primary principles in the program of any 12-step fellowship, those 11 and 12? Our relationship with power, and helping other people. Dr. Bob, in one of his final talks, talked about love and service. Great words, love and helping. At the top of page 14 in the book, he says in his own story, 
capturing the essence of the program about turning. Step three is a decision to turn. It's not surrender. It's not giving up. It's not passive. Step three, it's ferociously active. It's a ferocious use of my free will made a decision to turn. Listen to it. Don't mouth the, the things that you hear in meetings that just sound good, but have no substance based on experience or translation of the words in the big book. Made a decision to turn. Wow, that's aggressive. That's assertive. That's active, not passive. Simple, but not easy. A price has to be paid. It means the destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. And then at the bottom, he gives us the other side of the story, the rest of the story. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life. Now, this isn't with prayer and meditation. I came across that line in Jim's story on page 35 to 37 in the big book. Jim, the guy, the car salesman who put a little whiskey in his milk and went to the asylum every time he did, six times, and it says six times Bill and Bob worked with him. They didn't give up on him. They didn't say, come back when you're willing, get come back when you're serious, come back when you're sober. They didn't say that. They said, oh, my God, you fell again. What's going on? They worked with him. And the, and the uh, reason for his relapse is there on page 35. He failed to enlarge his spiritual life. He had done the six steps of the Oxford group. He had the promises. He got his wife back. He got his job back. Life was going great. But he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And here Bill tells us what that means. For if an alcoholic failed to enlarge and perfect his spiritual life, through work and self-sacrifice for others. Oh, it's not about prayer and meditation. We're not dismissing that. We're just saying this is another angle. This is about allowing the juice in me, the grace in me, the energy in me, the recovery in me to seep out from me to those around me so that they can walk the path that I walk and reduce their own suffering. One of my teachers I've mentioned is Richard Rohr. He said, we need to transform it or, or we transmit it. He's talking about six and seven and character defects. We, neither, we need to transform it or we transmit it. And as I meditated on that, I go, yeah, actually, I have a different take on it. We're always transmitting. Who we are is what we're transmitting. We're contagious. I mean, it probably came to me in one of my meditations in the last eight months while we're talking about and experiencing the pandemic. This virus that is so contagious and that's negative. But there's another aspect of it that might be positive. As a recovered person with a vital spiritual life, I'm contagious. Now, if I'm allowing my spirituality to diminish and disintegrate, then I'm going to be communicating the spiritual malady, those bedevilments. But if in fact I keep my shoulder against the dimmer switch pushing it up, I'm going to be emitting the light.
the spiritual solution. We're all contagious. Are you transmitting the bedevilments, the spiritual malady? Or are you transmitting unwittingly and unconsciously, are you transmitting the spiritual solution, the light, as we don't understand it? There are two um, references that I would make to you. Um, one is the pamphlet from Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about sponsorship. It's worth reading. It's a succinct, limited, but very relevant based on experience. On the opening pages, it says a uh, sponsor is an alcoholic who has made some progress in recovery program that shares their experience on a continuous individual basis with another alcoholic who is attempting to attain or maintain sobriety through AA. Simple, straightforward. The other book is the 12 step sponsorship by Hazelton. This is the best book on sponsorship. I've read it three times because it is so good. The primary responsibility of sponsors is to help their sponsees work the 12 steps. Couldn't be any clearer. I would add to that if I were to write it and to model principles and help their sponsees practice principles as a sounding board, as a vision of what it might look like. Number two, a sponsor and sponsee have an obligation to discuss their mutual expectations, objectives, and requirements regarding the sponsorship relationship before they enter into that relationship. I have more on that in a minute. A sponsor shares his or her experience, strength, and hope with his or her sponsee rather than trying to run the sponsee's life. I'm, I hold a position of detachment. And here's how it works. Watch my hands. I'll make a suggestion to my sponsee. And I'll say to them, if you take that suggestion, you will foster your spiritual awakening. If you don't take my suggestion, you may not. You choose. I have no investment in your action or your recovery or your relapse. I have no investment in it. I will celebrate your awakening. I will mourn your death. And I'm that direct and that clear with them. A sponsor must never take advantage of a sponsee in any way. It goes without saying, and yet it needs to be said. I make a distinction between personal in my personal experience, I make a distinction between a sponsor and a step guide. I had a sponsor from the beginning. I called that sponsor every day at his request. And I went to a meeting every day at his request. At that time, I didn't know why he asked those two things of me. But I took direction. And I don't know why I took direction. But one of the keys is willingness. And I don't know why I was willing. Somebody talked about the chicken and the egg earlier. That's very relevant in willingness and grace. 
I don't know which comes first, willingness or grace. And at this point, I don't care. But I did take it into a meditation. And I got a poem that didn't answer the question. It just soothed me. So I didn't have to pursue it any longer. I was taken to a place of willingness. Hear the grace. I was taken to a place of willingness. Ah, but I was willing to be taken. Hear my willingness to take the action. Did it answer the question? No. It's kind of like the drawing on the Sistine Chapel. The hand of God, of the creator reaching down to earth, and the hand of the human being reaching up from earth, and there's a space in the middle. God, the creator, man, human, the created, and a space in the middle. That's where the mystery is. I don't know the touch point of grace and willingness, and I don't need to. I was taken there and humbly grateful that that happened in retrospect. I can't explain it and I don't need to, but I do know and I emphasize that I was willing to be taken. And that for me is the key that unlocks the door to recovery and a vital spiritual life. I had a sponsor for four years and he ended up being my sponsor for 25 or 30 years. I, I don't remember all of the dates, doesn't matter. The point is that he didn't know much about the big book or the steps. And I heard a man share about the big book and the steps and he modeled the, the awakening. And I asked him to help me. After an hour's discussion, he said, Herb, you have a lot of information, all the background that I told you about. And he said, you have very little transformation. You have a lot of academic knowledge, including all of the knowledge in AA. But your feet don't move in that direction. You haven't changed, and that's not your experience. And I knew that he knew, and I knew that I didn't. And I, I engaged him as a project manager. I never hired him or engaged him as a sponsor. We were friendly, but we weren't friends. And at the end of the 12, 12 months of doing the steps, he went his way, I went my way. I still talk to him once a year because I have a deep, deep debt for the journey that he gave me and the freedom that he gave me from becoming acquainted with the big book as a textbook with the steps and the precision of those steps. I periodically engaged this, a step guide after that, 1991, 1994, 2003. Three different men, three different journeys, three different experiences. I haven't done the steps since 2003 because I've, I live pretty vitally and connected and consistently in 10, 11, and 12. So doing the first 12 steps, I call that spiritual sobriety, where we use our mind to know and we use our will to make a decision and to take action. And then we continue that process in 11 and 12. The two sides of a coin is the way I see it. Step 12, there it is. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the promise. That's the process, a spiritual awakening. If you have any doubt as to what that is, read Appendix 2 in the back of the book. He makes a distinction between the spiritual awakening and the spiritual experience. They're the same in terms of the outcome, a change, but they're very different in the process. 
and experiences that mountaintop mystical experience that Bill had, awakening is what most of us have, a very gradual educational variety, glacially slow in some of our cases. But then it says we tried to carry this message. That's the answer to the question, what's the message? Having had a spiritual awakening, see it in the context of the use of the word this message. This message is that you can have a spiritual awakening as the result of doing and finishing steps one through nine. And then of course, practicing the principles in all our affairs and chapters eight through 11 in the big book are all about your significant relationship, your family, your work, and your relationships in your community and fellowship, respectively to all of those chapters. Bill never gave us a list of principles. Read those chapters looking for the principles. Spiritual awakening is a change in the way we think and feel and behave. All three areas. The way our mind works in our cortex, the way our feelings work in our limbic system, the way our feet move in our biological system. All three brains are used here, and they're all changed. Our cortex, our limbic system, our brainstem, they're all changed. There's a biological actual change from our consistent behavior that's done to us, not by us, but not without us. That willingness and that grace again, that very mysterious dance. Thomas Merton called it a cosmic dance. Bill calls it essentially co-creation. Listen to the promise on page 75 in the big book. At the end of the fifth step, we feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. What a great poem. What a great image walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. There are several moving parts to the program. We've talked about that. Meetings, of course, are really important, but they're not the program. I'll distribute a couple reflections and documents after we get your uh, email list concerning when did meetings become the program? And what really is the program and how does it work? I think you'll find those quite challenging and quite helpful. Of course, the big book is the textbook. It's the best book I've ever read because it provides a methodology that's the most effective methodology for human development and change I've ever come across. If in fact you embrace the steps as outlined and contained in instruction, a very precise process in the book. Prayer, of course, because we're powerless and service because we're human. Helping other people acts perhaps contrary to our nature until it becomes in fact an organic part of our nature. But look at the final piece I put up there and I put it in, I think that's yellow in order to get people's attention. It's the most important piece the most important part, because if you have a consistent relationship with an experienced sponsor, you'll do all the other moving parts. 
There's pathetic Herbie before he came into the program. I'm in the bondage of addiction, but I didn't know that I didn't know until I began working the steps and I woke up. That turning from the world of self through steps one through nine, entering the world of the spirit, and then living in 10 through 12. Optimal recovery from addiction, first half of the first step, freedom from that addiction. Optimal living in the second half of the step process, living in steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. Bill says daily. That's not poetry. He says we're not cured uh, of our unmanageability. We're not cured uh, of our spiritual malady. If we want freedom from addiction and we want to live a happy, joyous, and free life, then we go through the steps and we continue rinse and wash in 10 and 11. And this is what happens to Herbie. Eventually, I realized there's no ceiling, there's no walls, there's no floor to the jail. It's just me in a delusion of holding bars in front of my face. And the step process one through nine allowed me to put down the bars and know that I'm fully responsible for my life. I entered the world of the spirit. My body and my mind and my will were changed. I recovered, placed in a position of neutrality. It says on page 84, placed in a position of neutrality. Hear the grace, neutrality. I'm neither fighting it, resisting it. There's no struggle at all, but I'm not cured, he said. Not cured, not of my addiction. I'm recovered from my addiction. Check the title page on, the, on, on your big book. How thousands of men and women have recovered. It's past tense. Given freedom from their addiction. Permanent freedom. If in fact, one day at a time, you do 10, 11, and 12, our way of life, because you're not cured of your unmanageability. This gives us physical sobriety. What do I mean by addiction versus unmanageability? One out of 10, five out of 10 have some form of addiction and are in a 12-step program of some kind. But Bill says in the preface to the first edition, our way of living may have its advantages for all. Because unmanageability is the human condition, not the addict condition. Unmanageability is the human condition. 10 out of 10 humans are unmanageable, selfish and self-centered, instincts gone awry, self-will run riot. And he says, we're, as addicts, we're extreme examples of self-will run riot. What does that look like? Bill gives us a behavioral description of unmanageability on page 52. I personalized it and made it present. I am having trouble with personal relations. I can't control my emotional nature. If you're going to identify with any of these, it means that you're not spiritually fit. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living. My, my we small voice in me said that satisfies me because her, you're a bottomless pit. There's not enough pleasure or adulation or happiness or satisfaction or recognition for you. When you ask, you will, and listen, you will hear. 
I have a feeling of uselessness. I am full of fear. I was doing this at 10 years of sobriety and seeing the description of my restless, irritable, and discontent. At 10 years of sobriety, already having done the steps twice and having two spiritual awakenings, I was clean and clear of my addiction, but I had not addressed my unmanageability. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be a real help to other people. And it was revealed to me that I really didn't care about other people. What I cared about was having the reputation of helping other people. That spiritual materialism that Trung Pung Rinpoche talks about in his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. We can use everything to polish our ego, even spirituality. So Bill says our way of living are steps 10, which clears the channel, a spot check inventory, meaning on the spot, not at night, not in writing, on the spot, we apply the tool of the 10th step. And every morning we fill the channel and every night we check it with another inventory. Not done in writing, but done in meditation. And then our attitude 24 seven is based on principles of living and helping other people. Principles, think about this. There's a, a, a principle or a law of physics called gravity. And what it means is if I drop a pen a hundred times, a hundred times it's gonna to go to the floor. It doesn't matter what I think or feel or want or read or been told. The law of physics, gravity, is independent of all of that. It just is. Perhaps there are human principles, principles that regulate, principles that are every bit as real as the principle of or the law of gravity, a physics law of gravity. Perhaps there's a human psychological, some people call it spiritual law of, for instance, honesty, simplicity, integrity, fidelity. I'm just saying, if in fact you transgress the law of physics by jumping off a 30-story building because you believe you can fly, you're going to die because gravity doesn't care. There's no feeling on the part of gravity. It just is. This is reality. If I transgress the principles of human behavior, the principles of psychology, the principles of the spirit, if I transgress those, I'm going to suffer. In fact, they will crush me. So I need to learn what those principles are and place myself in alignment with those principles. I think that's what step three is, placing ourselves in alignment. That word isn't in the big book, but it's the word I adopted to help me translate what does making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Please note, over to the care of God. We're not turning our will and our life over to God. God gave me my will and my life, at least in my story about it. 
It's my responsibility now to live in alignment with my understanding of these principles, my understanding of God's will, my understanding of reality as it is. And I do that because I watch for these things that I saw in step four. This is the role of sponsorship, to be an accountability partner. The individual praying when they're disturbed, but discussing it with somebody, maybe that sponsor or anybody else, making an amend when I've disturbed somebody else and helping. The ultimate turning at the beginning is to God because I'm powerless. The ultimate turning at the end to help somebody else because I'm human. And if that happens, what happens is I get the opposite of what is under listed under the watch for. Instead of resentment, I experience the release of resentment in forgiveness. I experience the opposite of fear, which is trust. The opposite of dishonesty, which is honesty. The opposite of selfishness in my terminology, which is love. Rather than only caring about me, I actually care about you. I, I mentioned, I looked up the word altruism. Doing something, some benefit for somebody else without any potential benefit for myself. Coming, it comes as close as I can to understanding unconditional love. Emotional sobriety. Meditation, we talked about just a little bit ago about the morning practice, which is my favorite practice of improving my consciousness, listening to my thinking. My overall approach to meditation has changed and expanded since I learned what the big book said and I practiced it for a while. I do prayer and meditation, but then I was expanded to contemplation, a very different project, a very different process, a very different methodology, a very different purpose. Meditation is for my directed thinking. I use my mind to discern reality and my destiny. But contemplation comes from the Latin word templare, temple space, the home of the divine. And in contemplation, I sit in the presence of the presence with a capital P, inviting it to have its way with me. No thought, no feeling, no action an invitation, trusting that the God of my non-understanding, unconditional love is the decision I made about it. And I sit in the presence of the sunlight, receiving the suntan of a spiritual improvement in my consciousness and in my behavior. That's the prayer of step 11, isn't it? praying for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. But sitting in that presence, consenting, sitting in that presence with my free will saying, thy will be done. Thy will be done. That's how Bill ends his meditation instruction on page 88. That simple prayer, using my free will to choose to be in alignment with my understanding of God's will. a change in the way we think and feel and behave and it's done to us, not by us, but not without us.
steps 10, 11, and 12, our way of life. On page 89, he says, we carry the message which provides immunization. If we have a spiritual malady, and that's the whole speculation of unmanageability, that it's a um, spiritual malady, a spiritual disease, Bill says on page 89, practical experience working with others, Practical experience shows us that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with others, other alcoholics. The manuscript uh, free publication of the big book in 1938-39 said working with others, especially alcoholics, which shows the spirit of the Oxford group movement as Bill interpreted it and had experienced it. Carrying the message to others, especially alcoholics. Now, fortunately, it was worded the way it is today, carrying the message to alcoholics because of a singleness of purpose, primary purpose. But it shows that original spirit that allowed Bill to say in the preface to the first edition, our way of living may have its advantages for all. But notice he used the word immunity. We have an inoculation. We have the ability to be inoculated against the problem, to be against the, the, uh, the obsession. We have an inoculation that in fact gives us freedom. That's why I talk about being in orbit around the light, launched by the rocket. It's interesting, once you get into the rocket, the rocket takes you to the destination. Once you begin the steps, the steps begin to work you. At least that's my experience with it. I'm coming back from the PowerPoint to talk a little bit more about my understanding of an experience with sponsorship. So a sponsor has some knowledge, right? That's what you're looking for. One of the keys I recommend people when they're looking for a sponsor is that certainly you pray about it. And in the day when you could go to meetings, you may still have that opportunity. I choose not to right now, even though some meetings are open. Then you listen to what people say and you watch how they behave. Listen to what they say. Do they have knowledge? Do they have wisdom? And then watch their behavior. Is their behavior in harmony with their words? Do they have an experience of awakening? I know now, I didn't know then, that that would require a knowledge of the big book and an experience of doing those steps and having finished the first nine steps. So one of the questions I would ask, have you done the steps? Have you finished your ninth step or are you in the process of it? And have you had a spiritual awakening? Yeah, these are really difficult questions to ask, but your life is on the line. This is not about a friendship. This is not about being liked. This is about life and death. This is about life and death in the sense of my addiction, but it's also about a fruitful life, a joyous life, a happy life in terms of unmanageability. The man who took me under his wing in that first project of doing the steps said, I will work as hard as you do, but I won't work any harder. 
I've adopted that as an operating principle. I don't chase people. I might follow up after they have not been available or around for a week or a month. And I might do it a second time, but I won't do it a third time. I won't work harder than they, I won't want it for them harder, more than they want it for themselves. It's really important to be patient as much as possible. One of my challenges is to be patient, to slow down, to realize it was an organic process with me that took decades, not just years, decades for me to fully realize the spiritual awakening, meaning having it real for me at least by my standard. Fortunately, I'm, as I was walking the path, I didn't know that I didn't know that I wasn't complete. I was as complete as I could be and aware that I was as complete as I could be, not knowing that I wasn't as complete as I could be. I hope you followed that. There's a lot of people who become quite righteous and in the, at least in the men's community, quite competitive. It's not helpful. It bothers me when I hear people try to do better stories than other people in meetings. That's really not the point. You don't get special medals or position of sanity and or recovery because you have a more gross or dramatic story. It might be more interesting, but it's not more helpful. Rigorous honesty, transparent honesty, the word I like to use for myself today, and it, I believe it's true, is undefended. I have nothing to defend today. I've been transparent since for 32 years, or at least having that as my goal. Undefended. I, the puppet strings on circumstances and people have been cut by this process. I was horribly codependent at one time, getting my sense of value from other people and or circumstances. Or, or the recognition that I would get from my own accomplishments. And through this process and some understanding of codependency as well as some therapy, I've been able to have those puppet strings cut. Notice I didn't say I cut the strings. No, they were cut. Trustworthiness and confidentiality are keys to ingredients for a sponsor. So many people that I meet don't trust their sponsors. They'll tell them a certain amount of things, but they'll hide some secrets. They won't be transparent. That was one of the things my first sponsor said to me. I want you to be transparent. I didn't know what that meant. So I asked him, he said, I want your insides and your outsides to match. Okay. I don't think I still understood, but I said, fine. Make sure they don't take the role as a teacher. Although the role is somewhat of a teacher and the methodology and pedagogy is different and everybody's personality is different, but I prefer to ask good questions and help people ask questions. I try to help people phrase and frame questions for themselves and I don't give them the answer. I allow them to cook it, to allow it to percolate in prayer and some own, their own reading and research or discussion with other people. Ask good questions. You'll see in the big book, Bill really asks tremendously penetrating questions at the beginning of every new phase in the development of the 12 steps. Pay attention to the questions. 
Joe and Charlie had a great sense of humor and they said, pay attention to the questions in the big book and you'll recognize them because at the end of a sentence, there's a question mark. <laughs> of course, but stop and pause. Use it as a stop sign, they said, and ask the question and, and don't come ready, ready, fire, aim. It's a ready, aim, fire, much more effective. Pause in prayer, hold the question and let it percolate and carry you with the energy of an asked but unanswered question to a place that you didn't even anticipate was there. One of the best items in that book I showed you on 12-step sponsorship is that they have a sense of humor and are enjoying their sobriety as well as enjoying their life. A sense of humor, my own spiritual director said, and he's not in a 12-step program. He's a clinical psychologist who was the monk uh, back in the 60s. And he said, the sign of authentic spirituality is a sense of humor. He said, Herb, you got to lighten up. <laughs> back in the day, my motto, I mean, I heard it in the meetings and it disgusted me. Easy does it? Come on, get, get real. My motto is heavy does it. Well, all right. Yeah, I know. Thank you for smiling. Yeah, it's still part of my personality. You might even get that from my intensity. Um, but I try to lighten up. I try to not take me seriously. I take the process seriously and I take the disease seriously and I take the adventure seriously, but I try not to take me seriously. Respectful is a characteristic I think is critical in sponsorship relationship. It is in all relationships, but I hear so much guilting and shaming that, that happens from sponsorship and part of that's control and part of that's just a lack of uh, righteousness. I mean, a, 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 a lack of insight to their own righteousness. It's a coach and a mentor and a guide position, a role model, as somebody said earlier. I love that concept, a role model. And that's why I love the image of lantern. A key would be that they have what you want. Those were what I asked myself when I was looking at uh, step guides and they had a knowledge of the book and they had an experience with the steps and they were articulate and competent and they had a way of life and a light in their eye and they lived by principles with integrity. Those were the things that I was looking for. The man who took me through the steps had more than that. He had a family that was my value. He had a marriage that was my, a long-term marriage that was my value. He had a job, a professional work that was my value. So he had many, many, many of the ingredients that I had or wanted to have or wanted to improve. Now, interestingly enough, the third time I went through the work, I was in prayer and meditation asking for guidance as to who should take me through the work. And a name came to me and I discard, I said, no, no, that person has never had a real job has never uh, uh, taken responsibility for having a decent relationship or a career or an education. Uh, they're seriously overweight, uh, they smoke, 
And there were, I had a list of things that, no, I reject that person. I reject that person. Three months of meditation. Finally, I go, all right. It was the only name that ever came to me. So I do trust meditation, even though I don't trust myself sometimes. In this case, I, I learned to, that my evaluation was overridden by the spirit. And I engaged this person and it was a two-year contemplative process that was the, the, one of the best uh, experiences that I've had in my entire life, introducing me to the set-aside prayer, introducing me to unmanageability, introducing me for the very first time to an effective steps two and three, an amazing experience. And if I had followed my own instincts, I would have missed it. Fortunately, I allowed the spirit to override my instincts, but I didn't do it immediately. It was only after some prayer and then some discussion with my current sponsor. And keep always in mind, there are no rules, no regulations in an authentic 12-step program or any type of a authentic spiritual path. God or alcohol. The dimmer switch is going up toward the light or down toward the darkness. That's the only discipline, Bill said. I also am very inclusive. I have no rules about anything. I have suggestions, but I'm also very inclusive in terms of potential help sources, resources, therapy, medication, religion, self-help. I have some experience but I try not, to, and I have opinions, of course, but I don't put my opinions on anybody else. I'll share my experience. I'll share my thoughts and my pros and cons. But I encourage people to read outside the program, to experience and explore outside the 12 steps environment and culture. I mentioned being a sponsor is, is being like a lantern. It's really important to know what your expectations are of a sponsor. Now, when you're new, that's really hard to do, but at least have some idea as to what you're expecting. Everybody has a different personality and a different style and a different experience and different levels of understanding and a, and a different way of handling themselves and, and dealing with other people. What are your expectations? Once again, your life is on the line. Your actual physical life because of the addiction, but your actual moral and ethical and spiritual and psychological life in terms of unmanageability. Do they have the capacity? Do they have time? Ask them. Make sure. I asked this man who took me through the steps who was exceedingly busy with his work, his family, and also with his sponsorship. And I said, how do you do it? How many sponsor, sponsees should I have? How many can you handle? He said, I, I've never counted and I never say no. I just say you might have to wait. I've adopted that. I asked another man, so how do you make space? He said, I look at my calendar. I plan all of my commitments to my family and all of my commitments to my job and all of my commitments and personal commitments and any white space AA owns me. Wow. You know, lots of different principles from wisdom people who have what I want. But it's about balance. Balance is, differs from different people. 
balancing your life's responsibilities. And at different ages and stages and cycles, it'll be different. I'm retired now. My responsibilities are different. The pamphlet that I showed you from the General Service Office says, a sponsor is firmness tempered with sympathy and understanding. Firmness tempered with sympathy and understanding. Learn to depend on God, learn to depend on power other than ourself. Learn to depend on the process of the steps. We call it a practice. We practice step 10. We practice step 11. We practice principles. Progress, not perfection. And in fact, the other day I heard a phrase that I'd never heard before. I loved it. Life is a practice. Oh my God. What a great lens to look through. Oh, I'm, I'm practicing and I made a mistake. It doesn't name me. That mistake doesn't name me. It's just a mistake. Now, because I have consciousness and principles and experience, I can see the mistake more quickly. I can know the correction to the mistake and I can make it more quickly and more effectively. Practice. Clearly avoid outside issues. That may be obvious, especially in today's environment, in the United States anyway with politics, but avoid outside issues. And uh, medication and therapy are outside issues. And anything that you don't have direct knowledge of and experience of is an outside issue. If I have that one word, help, it saves me. How can I help? In, in 30 years ago, after doing this work, it came to me in meditation to improve my communication with my wife, is to pause before I said anything and ask, is this going to help? Do you know that 50% of my conversation went away? Because it wasn't helpful. It was passive aggressive, it was retaliatory, it was righteous or what an insensitive, inconsiderate. There were so many different variations on the theme because I had just come out of the process of rehabilitation through the steps to a new spiritual awakening, but I wanted to be a better person. And the spirit said, use the word help as the filter before you say anything. Is it going to help? And if in fact you have any doubt, silence. If you have any doubt as to whether it's going to help or not, be silent. In your home group, make sure that the home group has an interest in sponsorship so that they have a list of sponsors. And at the end of the meeting, if you go back to physical meetings or even on Zoom, that they ask if there's anybody who needs a sponsor, they could access that list, make it available to people and or um, ask for hands of people who are willing to and have the capacity for sponsorship so that new people can identify them or at least listen to those people specifically to see if they might have an interest in that. It's really interesting in many of the meetings I heard, they, people talk about, they give out their phone numbers to newcomers and they hardly ever get a call. Well, of course, what, what newcomer is gonna call anybody 
that takes initiative. Plus, it's pretty scary to call somebody you don't know, to, to be vulnerable with them. So the recommendation I heard, which I've adopted, is get their number. The newcomer, get their number and call them after a day or two. Let, you know, glad that you were at the meeting. Is there anything that we can do? How are you doing today? Get their number. If you notice in the big book, the examples of Bill and Bob were very proactive. They, they didn't sit in the, their room waiting for people to call them. They went to the hospital and they found Fred on page 43 or 42. They went to the asylum and they found Jim on page 35. They reached out proactive. As I've said before, you find a sponsor by prayer, certainly, by meditation, certainly, prayer, asking for a, a sponsor to show up. It, it's never failed me. 30 to 90 days of prayer and meditation has always surfaced somebody, either by my thinking about it or by them being put in my life. Um, that's my observation about it. I don't think that's coincidence. Meditation, of course, is listening. Prayer is talking, asking. Meditation is listening. Listening to my thinking, listening to my feelings, listening to my gut instincts, listening to my sensations, listening to anything that I'm aware of in any type of a conscious way as a possible sound that might give me some truth. Be very clear what you're looking for in terms of your needs and your expectations. And then make an appointment to have a phone call conversation or a cup of coffee conversation and interview them. Oh yes, I'm using that term. Interview a person that you're looking at to be a prospective sponsor. You want to know who they are, what they do, what they expect. You want to tell them what you know, what, what your needs are and what you expect to see if there's a resonance and a, and a match. Does their attitude match? the one that you're looking for, their style and their experience. Now, of course, this is more difficult the newer you are, but it's as true for the new person as the longer term person. And as I said, are they happy with their sobriety and are they happy with their life? If the answer is no to either one of those questions, probably time for you to move someplace else. They probably need some type of work, but that's not for you to tell them. <laughs> what about the same fellowship? We talked about that with the answer to the question with the other person. What about gender? Well, there's no rules. There's a recommendation in that GSO pamphlet that men work with men and women work with women, but there are no rules. They're just suggestions for the obvious reason. It's a very intimate relationship and it can lead to mischief. But I know lots of successful relationships of men and women in sponsorship, depending on the program. One of the key questions is, do they have my best interest at heart? When I told my sponsor in 1988 that I was going to work the steps with another man, I wasn't talking about leaving him as a sponsor and, or getting a new sponsor. I was going to get some additional help. And he said, Herb, you need all the help you can get. 
You see, he had my best interest. Yeah, I know. He had my best interest at heart, though. He wasn't attached from an ego standpoint. He didn't own me. I wasn't a notch on his belt. I wasn't one of the list of counts of his sponsor. And I know people, it's unfortunate. It's human nature. I know people who start conversations with, well, I sponsor 20 guys, or I sponsor 10 guys, or I, it's kind of like, really? Who cares? And I'm asked all the time, how many people do you sponsor? I say, I really don't know. And I don't pay any attention. And I don't count. God knows I don't count. I sponsor them one at a time when they call me or I call them. What about being a sponsee? What's the frequency of calls and meetings? Y'all have to discuss that and determine what are your needs. I think that would depend on the level of recovery and the time that you've had and the work that you've done and the development emotionally and spiritually that you have. I suggest to my sponsees that they call me once a week, minimum, call me one. They can call me every day. I don't ask that. My sponsor did. I don't do that. I used to, but most people didn't do it. So I stopped asking them to do it. Uh, I, I asked them to call me once a week and half of them do, half of them don't. I don't, I mean, I'm not invested in them following quote, my suggestions. Um, and that we meet once a week, once a month, eyeball to eyeball, that we meet once a month. I still have that requirement during the pandemic. Most of my people are seasoned people and uh, they're mature and responsible. I won't meet with anybody that isn't mature and responsible. I'm not taking any risks at my age. Anyway, that's the standards that I use. Call once a week at a minimum. Meet once a month at a minimum. This is after we've done the steps. During the steps, I, it's a weekly call and or meeting during the steps. And what's the accountability agreement between the two people? Have a discussion about what does it mean to be accountable? I like the formula. Tell me what you're thinking and feeling and doing, especially doing. That's really important, transparently. I have lots of people that come back weeks or months later and say, you know, I really wasn't honest with you here because here's what I was doing. And I didn't really want to tell you because I didn't want to change. Yep, okay, understand that. Welcome to the human race. My sponsor in the uh, first five years made wonderful suggestions as commitment to the meetings go early 10 minutes, stay late 10 minutes. I didn't know why he said that, he never explained it. But after a while I learned that it made me part of. And he said, when you're there early and you're there late, help out. In those days we had uh, ashtrays and porcelain cups, which needed to be washed after the meeting. The room needed to be set up, the coffee needed to be made. There need and there were always people who were standing around who needed some attention. And that was the point. It made me part of a community. What about changing sponsors? It's a dicey thing. Um, the 12 step sponsorship has a uh, section on that on page 35. Do, how do I fire a sponsor? It's a pretty dramatic term. How do I terminate a relationship to move on? Some people just move on. I've got lots of people who have moved on and never mentioned it to me. And 10 or 20 years later, we're in a meeting or we're in a social event 
And I said, well, how are you doing? You know, am I still your sponsor? Oh, no, no, I moved on 20 years ago. Okay, then bless you, go, go forth and multiply. Uh, they identify some basic incompatibility with their sponsors, such as a personality clash or intolerance. They outgrow their sponsors. Their sponsors become possessive or controlling. Their sponsors do something that betrays their trust. Either they or their sponsors move into another town. You see, most everybody believes in local sponsorship, but certainly at a level of uh, newness. Once you've had five or 10 or certainly longer than that of a relationship with the sponsor, for instance, in my case, it was easy to maintain a very transparent relationship on the phone, even though he had moved to a different city when he retired. Eventually, I wanted a local sponsor so that I could actually meet with them on a regular basis. They find someone uh, with whom they think they can work more effectively. I think a lot of it is that we outgrow. We outgrow the people that we're connected to. It's wonderful to maintain a friendship. But if, in fact, you want to continue growing, if, in fact, you're pressed up gently against it, you will, in fact, grow organically. Very clearly, as a sponsee and or a sponsor, the idea of each person having their own experience, not the book's experience, not the sponsor's experience, but the individual experience. That's critical. What does willingness to go to any length mean? You hear it in the meetings and you hear silliness attached to it. It's very human, I guess, to do that. But on page 58, it clearly tells us if you're willing to go to any length, dash. On page 58, how it works. If you're willing to go to any length, dash, then you're going to do the steps. That's any length. Do steps four through nine and finish the ninth step. I have finished the ninth step every time I have started from step one. You can finish the ninth step, dead people, people that you shouldn't find, people that you can't find, people whose names that you don't know, situations that you just need to be very creative, get some guidance from experienced people. Not everybody has the experience of how to do each one of those amends, but somebody will have enough experience. Ask around, be creative, do prayer. Approach it with the spiritual attitude. One of the keys to sponsorship, to being a sponsee, is do acts contrary to your will. Acts contrary to your will. At least in the first five years. I consider a newcomer, because I was a newcomer for five years. I had done the work. I went to a meeting every day. I called a sponsor every day. But I was really a newcomer because I hadn't thought out physically for the first four years it took. And then I uh, thought out emotionally and spiritually when I did the steps in 1988 at five years of sobriety. That thawing out period is for the newcomer from my standpoint. Now I don't say that from the podium or at a meeting where I'm a speaker or something like that because it discourages people, especially the new people. Five years, oh my God, I can't do five days, let alone five months, five years, that's impossible, goodbye. No, so that's why I don't do that. What will be helpful? Here, I'm probably talking to more seasoned people that 
It's why you would be attracted to something on a Saturday for three hours, for God's sake. Who does that? People who are serious about their own recovery and probably people who are serious about trying to help other people. I'm going to pause here and ask, are there any uh, questions or concerns um, that uh, you would like to cover in the balance of the time that we have together? I think you said you had more than one spiritual awakening. That was my original question. How do I know if I've had a spiritual awakening? Is there a maybe there or would I absolutely know if I've had a spiritual awakening? I think in some areas I have, maybe in other areas I haven't. Yeah, it's not an emotional or an intellectual experience. It's a change in your behavior. Now, sometimes it's a change in your attitude and you'll know that, but mostly it's a change in your behavior. How are your feet moving? Are you more honest? Are you uh, consistent with your prayer meditation? Are you aware of the presence of God more frequently? So the appendix two describes it as a change. And I capture it as a change in the way we think and feel and behave. Okay. And okay. yeah, all right. And one more, you said we immunize ourselves. It said nothing ensures immunity from alcohols working with other alcoholics. And my question is, are we able to get that immunity from unmanageability? Or yeah. do we just keep turning up the dimmer switch and just staying in the unmanageability less time? Is that what it is? That's what it the is. Immunity. Actually. Yeah. The uh, unmanageability okay. we're not cured of. That's what I think he means. We're not cured of unmanageability. So we are able to manage our lives if we are conscious and aware of principles and ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think staying there less time for me. I get unmanageable, but then I'm there much less time than I was when I first came in. Exactly. Thank you, sir. My question is about taking a sponsee through the 12 steps. And I've heard people say that, oh, you should do it as quickly as possible. Yes. And other you know, so that that would be my question. What what is your point of view on that? Uh, yes. And what does uh, that what does that mean in terms yeah. of time? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, it's very relative to the individual. Wally P. Back to Basics. That's the name of his book and process. Wally P. Back to Basics. He takes people through the steps in one day or one weekend, and that's wonderful for a newcomer that they get kind of an experience and exposure, and they get the overview of it all. But anybody who thinks they've done the steps in uh, one day or one weekend, or quite frankly, in what's called an AWOL, um, in terms of any type of depth, they're kidding themselves. They just don't know that they don't know. Um, my experience with the step process, it takes about six months to two years, depending on whether it's in an individual or a group and what the level of commitment and the time uh, for it. Um, and uh, so, but it's, I really do recommend uh, uh, a weekend exposure or an AWOL exposure two or three times would be great. Kind of get exposure to the overall vocabulary and the dynamic of each of the steps so that you get some traction, but then uh, go, go deeper. And it might take six months or it might take a year to go through the steps, but it, that will all be based on uh, obviously your own capacity to digest it and where you are emotionally and spiritually in terms of your development. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
my relationship with my sponsor is she's come to find that the way that she motivates me is by um, starting out what she's saying by reminding me this is something that I can pass on to my sponsees. Mm -hmm. And that's what motivates me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah. And you know that the point there is, and I'm going to get underneath it to the exact nature of what you're saying, is help people establish a value proposition. What's going to be the benefit for them? And that's going to be very personal. So I really love what you said. That's right. Your sponsor helped you identify a value to you. Now, other people would have had a completely different response. And that's their value. So we have to find not in our head, but in our total being. What is the value for us? Um, yeah, hi, Herb. I had an interesting conversation with another member um, the other day where they point where their interpretation of the doctor's opinion, I don't have the big book with me right now, but you will know in the doctor's opinion, there's a little part about it where it says that for the alcoholic who is really jittery, we favor hospitalization. Right. And their interpretation of that meant that they think that abstinence or rehab is a precursor to working the steps yeah that's, that's not, not what it says that's not what it says it's a misinterpretation that serves a predetermined objective of control and i i don't believe that for a minute everybody's welcome to their interpretation what it does mean is somebody needs to detox and get clear enough so that they're able to think all right but i work with people who are working the steps and still drinking now, yeah. the steps work much better if you're not drinking. <laughs> yeah. But it's the cart before the horse if you want people to be abstinent before they work the steps, because the whole point of step one is that you have no choice. And if you don't have a choice, what's, what's the solution is that you find power. And steps two and three are about a, a choice of yeah. power. Yeah. Not, not of not of your not of your addiction. So I'm I'm very clear. At least this is my approach, and I believe it's the big book's approach. Thank you. That helps me. You're welcome. Thank you. I know in um, uh, other work workshops, we've had the privilege. I'm going to say of having experienced an introduction to steps ten through twelve in the beginning. Yes. And then beginning. Steps yeah. one through nine. Do you do that routinely with sponsees? I, yes, I began that about three years ago as I'm not sure exactly. Oh, because uh, Hazelton asked me to write that book on meditation. And mm -hmm. we agreed that I would uh, use the step 11 meditation as the lenses through which to look at step one and two, etc. And that insight allowed me to say, well, why not work steps 10, 11, and 12 while you're beginning to look and experience at the steps? So yeah, it's been very actually quite productive for me. And going back to that other, in a minute, uh, going back to that other question that was asked about a, a good book on spirituality, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but that sec my own second book, 12 Steps to Spiritual Awakening, will incorporate both uh, knowledge of and experience with the steps, but the broader knowledge of the journey of the entire spiritual journey, uh, based on my background and traditions. So, um, 
I would say that probably would be one of the better books that could help you. It might not be one of the better books you ever read, but it will be one of the better books that helps you walk the spiritual path of the 12 steps to have a spiritual awakening. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I had a couple questions. One is you said you have no rules for sponsees. Right. Um, when I when people ask me to sponsor them, I ask them to uh, commit to trying or actually going to ninety meetings in ninety days because yeah, great suggestion. That, yeah, that worked for me. Yeah, me too. And, and um, I, I, you know, it's that thing about like, is this selfish or is this? Am I trying to help someone else? It's like part of me thinks if they're not willing to make that commitment, then I'm not willing to commit my time to trying to help them. That's your decision. All right. Yeah. Um, but, but as I said, it's also, I, I believe it's something that's much more, you know, if they do that, they're much more likely to succeed at this point. I agree hundred percent. But what if they don't do that and they still want your help? Um, I don't think that's really happened. Okay. Well, there you go. It's working for you. I'm so practical. I'm so practical. If it works, continue it. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I used to, in the beginning, replicate my experience. My sponsor had me call him every day, and I was willing to do that. And I would ask the people who I sponsored to call me every day, and they wouldn't do that. So I stopped asking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had a second part. Um, on the other side, um, I have had sponsees who keep relapsing yeah and you know after that happens a few times i usually suggest to them that for some reason it doesn't seem to be working with us yeah and that they might have a better chance with a, a different sponsor and it's a great offer it's a great offer as long as you're not firing them i've never fired anybody but i have had that conversation Okay. Or maybe I've had the conversation that they might need some therapy or medication to assist them in, in the journey. Yeah. Or inpatient. <laughs> or, or inpatient. Absolutely. Or outpatient. Absolutely. Great. Yep. 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 They, they, they certainly are not, mm, I'm not helping them if they're not able to get any traction. That, yeah. that, see, and that's trying to be helpful. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, continue, continue. Your attitude and your approach sounds wonderful. It's based on experience and it's gentle. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, my question is this. When uh, somebody comes to you and asks uh, you to sponsor them, yeah. what is the starting point? Do you interview them? Do you have questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about that, please. Well, I ask them, you know, who they are, where they've been, what they've done what they're looking for. And if they're calling me because they've read my book or they've been exposed to me in a workshop or they've heard me speak, um, I'm very reluctant to take them on as sponsees because it's really um, not a personal, what I consider to be an invitation from that person. But, that's, but I interviewed them to try to find out what is the quality of that invitation that they have. And um, the compatibility that we might have and the resonance that we might have, how I can help them. 
Um, and that sometimes I will have that wonderful, wonderful uh, conversation and then make a recommendation that they go to prayer for 30 days and or that they go to a meeting that I'm involved with and, and hear the people in the meeting and or that they talk to two or three people that I'm familiar with, maybe even sponsor and have a conversation with them also. Um, more often than not, um, the people who call me that don't have a personal reason or relationship, they'll find an alternative to me. But I'm, I, so it's a discernment process on their part and on my part. Great, thank you so much. Oh, it's a great question, a great question, yeah. In my fellowship, which is DA, we also have accountability partners. And so this might yeah. be off topic, so you can um, tell me, but I'm supposed to be um, somebody's accountability partner. And I, I sort of waver between either being codependent or being really blunt. Yeah, um, yeah, so wow. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? It is. And I have a question because I, I call her sponsee, but I'm not doing the steps with her because I don't think I'm qualified to do the steps. I'm just here to get her through this process of filing her taxes, which oh. I have a lot of experience with. Oh, yeah. Um, so my question is that she just wants to tell me a story for our meeting. And I'm, <laughs> I know how you are about story. Oh, Boom. <laughs> and so I just want to focus on what are your actions because I am there to be an accountability partner. So it's been going on now for three months. And so I'd like to get your take yeah. on how it's to handle hard. this. That's hard. People are so invested in their story and they have such a habit and they don't know it's their story. It's, it's such a sincerity on their part and such a habit of telling it that they almost can't do anything else. But here's how it works with me. If somebody begins to call, then I sponsor. And I mean, I don't sponsor everybody that calls me, but the, the people that call me, I'm more direct with, <laughs> to use your term. Um, and it, after two or three minutes, if they're talking about a relationship with work or a relationship at home or, or some other drama, it do, does depend on the situation. I will listen until I really feel that it's not, a, it's not helpful to continue to listen. And it might be one minute, it might be five minutes, it could be 30 minutes, but normally it's within one to five minutes. I will ask them what step they're working on. And it's funny how quickly they get other calls or have other things to do because they stop the conversation if they're not doing the work. So they're not doing the work. And so I say, how can I help you Let's try a different tactic. Yep. How and can that, help doesn't, you? Yep. that doesn't get done either. Yeah. So at what point do you say, I think I'm, I think I'm not helping you. I'm not, this, this yep. dial yep. is not moving along. And, and there's no rules or regulations and there's no formula to the words, but essentially what you do is, is you say, you know, listen, you're so invested in your story. And quite frankly, I'm not interested in your story, but I am interested in helping you. How can I help you? Well, what I, what I hear is a lot of fear in, in not doing the actions is a lot of fear, but I'm not there to be their step guide uh, oh, and I'm not even their sponsor. But, but so why are they calling you? I'm there to be an accountability partner to get them through their taxes. Um, and what does it mean to be an accountability partner in your context? To me, the context is you work on your taxes until they're filed. 
Well, so that would be the question I would ask. What, what have you done recently to complete the work on your taxes? I haven't done anything. Okay, call me when you have. Thank you. I hang up on them. Now, I'm, I try to be kind. I try to be gradual. But there are some people that just need, you need a four by four to get their attention. Now I'm working mostly with men, so it might be a little bit different, but uh, there, is a, there is a line between direct and rude. And um, I get very, um, how would you say, ambiguous about that many times. <laughs> I try to be direct. Sometimes it verges on rude and it might depend on, uh, what time of day it is and how much sleep I've had that night. <laughs> well, I just, I don't want to do my own projection. You know, it took me many, many fits and starts to get through the process. Yeah. So I don't want to have my projection onto them, but yet- well, the but They're, time, they're not progress. in the process of the steps. They're in the process of doing their taxes and you're their accountability partner. If they're not doing the, the, the taxes, there is no point to a continued conversation. Okay. Then you could say that. Okay. I'm here to help you with your taxes. If you have questions, great. If you're not doing your taxes, we have nothing to talk about. We have nothing to talk about. Talk about, you call your sponsor. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like you have any problem being direct. <laughs> so sometimes I do. I do. Yeah, so put the iron fist into a velvet glove and exercise it. I've been called that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks very much. No, it's an excellent question. I mean, there's no bad questions if they're sincere. Please, uh, Elizabeth. Herb, I have a sponsee who uh, was a friend before she was a sponsee. I suggested that she go to Al-Anon. Yeah. Uh, she asked me to be her sponsor. She started working the steps, but she's a extremely busy person through the school year because she's a teacher and has a young child. And now she wants to just call and check in, but she's not doing, she's not doing the step work. Are you sponsoring her? Yes. And uh, what is your expectation of being a sponsor? She, I have given her a sp specific questions and assignments to work on step two. And is she doing that? And I've told her that I want her to call me at a certain time each week as opposed, she can call me in between, but she has to set up a time to call me each week. All right. And does she follow direction? Uh. Well, she has not done that work since school started in the fall. So what is there to talk about? Yeah, so she calls and checks in about her life. Uh, well, is that what you want her to do? Well, it's all right with me. She checks in about her life, but I also want her to be doing step work. So how long will you stay on a phone with her while she's checking in on her life and not talking about her step work? Well, maybe half an hour. Oh my goodness, you're generous. <laughs> I, would, I would do five minutes. Okay, all right. But uh, no, but it's up to you, you see. But you see, what you didn't have is uh, you don't have any 
uh, parameter here. If you have a parameter saying, if you want to call and talk about your life, I'll give you five minutes. If you want to call and talk about your step work, I'll give you 30 minutes. Got it. See how clear that is? Yeah. It's her choice. Yeah. Because, um, and, and we're not their therapist. And we're not their friend in this role. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Herb, that's helpful. But you can do anything you want. Right. It's your life and you can spend it in any way that you want, see? So I'm just helping you perhaps establish some guidelines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. I'm sponsoring two, uh, two people and they both in different ways have a lot of, uh, I guess, issues with the relationship with their partners. I mean, one of them also, he, uh, her, her partner gets into relapse and gets to be very uh, contentious. And I'm, I, I'm sometimes like, what's my role here? Like, how, how can I guide that person, navigate through this difficult relationship? Well, that's but not your job. That's not my, yeah. That, that's yeah. therapist's job. Or uh, she should, that person should go to Al-Anon. Okay. Al-Anon is the program to help navigate difficult relationships. Okay. Yeah. And, and Al-Anon has been around since 1951. So there's a lot of maturity and wisdom in the rooms. Not that everybody has it, just like in AA, but there will be uh, a selection of people that would be very helpful to this person. But yeah, that's, that's not your role. Your role, well, uh, let me ask you, have you come to grips with what is your role in this relationship? I mean, it is, it is someone who follow your workshop and the way I work the steps is is doing the homework, following your workshop. So that's, I mean, my role is to help them through the steps. But when sometimes life events or life, yeah, things, and, and so help, they, help them in the way that you can and are willing to and have experience. That you can are willing to and have experience. And then, then you determine how much time you want to spend in that area. That's yeah. really, it's, uh, again, it's really up to you to determine the guidelines for yourself. Yeah. Okay. All right. Have similar issues with relationships. Sure. Yeah. It's, it takes a big part of their life. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at the loss. Like, how much can I... Yeah. My, 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 my original sponsor, though, from the very beginning, 28 years, I had this person as my sponsor. He had uncommon common sense. And he was able to help me and be a sounding board for my work, for my marriage, for managing money, for managing fun, for managing my relationship with AA. He was really good, uncommon common sense but he had no real understanding of the steps and or the spiritual path, which I didn't know at the beginning. So I had to go outside that relationship. So 
I used this person and sometimes we talked for five minutes and sometimes we talked for an hour and he was quite helpful in helping me navigate based on his experience, not as a counselor therapist, but just sharing his experience and how he was able to have um, a successful life. So, but those are decisions that you make as to what, what you have knowledge about and experience in. And if it's within the scope of your expectations, now, my step guides and I never had discussions about our lives and our problems. We worked solely on the step work. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. that's all I'd like, I think. Yeah. Well, and that's what you need to explain. Maybe they need a sponsor in addition to a step guide. That's why I make that distinction. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's very healthy. Thank you so much. Thank you for it. Yeah. So my question is, in, in all my attempts to walk people through the steps, I've only had of maybe 10 or 15 people, I've only had two that ever hung in all the way to step 12. And I don't know if that's just because I can't hang on to them or is that typical or, you know, because you can't can't pull make a horse you know you can take him to the water but you can't make him drink right it's a great question i'm going to give you a bigger perspective isn't it wonderful that two people finish the work it is wonderful and every time even when i have a failure well not failure that leave i have gained something so i like that you know the story of um uh, Bill Wilson and Lois, where she said, yeah, but you stayed sober. And so my chronic concern and question is, how can I be more effective? Because quite frankly, I have 50% or 40% of the people drop out of the group. And I would love it to be less. I don't, I don't know why they go and where they go but it's improved over time. And maybe that's because I've improved the process or my way of presenting it. I know uh, when two years ago, I started the workshop using 10, 11 and 12 at the beginning, mm -hmm. it increased the uh, percentage of people that stayed by about 10 to 15%. Gotcha. I don't know whether it's a coincidence or whether it was a change in the approach. I, I personally believe it's a change in the approach. Right. So you just keep that question in mind. How can I be more competent? How can I be more effective, but know that the results are none of your business? Okay. All right. Thank you. No, it's great. Thank you for that question. It's great. Thanks. I've learned so much about um, letting go of my people pleasing and um, trying to get attention as, as a sponsor in program. And uh, the boundaries that you're setting with people as I see you speak with them have helped me so much in all my relationships. It, you know, the directness and, <laughs> and, and also to be instructive on how I need to be treated as 
your person or your friend or your sponsor it, that it's okay to list things that I need. And um, in doing that, I am getting what I need and am, am doing less trying to manipulate people, uh, which is an old habit that started in childhood. Yeah. And um, so that's dropping away. And um, gosh, I thank you for it. Well, see, and not only are you learning information, but you're seeing people's interaction, which is modeling some things that you're embracing because, oh, I can think, I can talk, I can act like that, and that will be more helpful to me. And, and we don't know until we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know till we know is right. Thank you. Uh, thank this, you. Today was great. Uh, mentioned several times about a spiritual guide. Yeah. And for someone who's not in your environment uh, and having had your background, what would be your suggestions for identifying that? Yeah. Um, sometimes within the program, there are people that have that persona and that experience. But if you're looking for an official spiritual director, the local retreat centers, whatever local means to you, uh, doesn't mean it's got a religious orientation at all. But a retreat center normally has a registration of people who are certified, trained as spiritual directors. And you can call them and ask. And if they don't, ask them for a referral to a place that might have a resource. But typically, there are directories of people. And at the very least, there's an organization called Spiritual Directors International, and they have a website. And they would have a registration of people in your geographical area that are trained spiritual directors. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a great question. I should have addressed that in the major group of people, because that's a really excellent question. Thank you for asking it. I'm going to end formally uh, with a reading of the vision from page 89 and then a prayer, the prayer of St. Francis. On page 89, it said, Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up around, about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience that you will not want to miss. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Cooperate, never criticize. Here's the bottom line, and it's the mantra. Bottom of page 89, the last sentence. To help, to be helpful is our only aim. To be helpful is our only aim. Now, of course, you have to figure out what that means. I'm going to put up the um, prayer. As you can see, I didn't finish my PowerPoint, but that wasn't the point. Oh, I like that one. Becoming a lantern, lighting the path. This is the image. This is the model. This is the vision that I would love you to hold, becoming a lantern, meaning filled with light, 
but then lighting the path for others. Oops. And so please join me in the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, and, and listen to the promise and listen to the process. Listen to the procedure. Listen to the turning. We make that commitment of turning in step three. And we are turned by the end of step nine. And we become a channel. We're not the light, but we are the lantern. A channel of the light. Please join me. Lord, make me a channel of your peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope, that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy, Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. This is about the death of the false self that turning that Bill talked about on page 14, from our self-centeredness, turning to the light. Eckhart Tolle in his book, The Power of Now, says the secret to life is to die before you die and realize that there is no death. The spiritual path is the spiritual path and the principles are all the same. The vocabulary is different, but the principles are the same. Walk on that path and then help others walk that path in the light of your experience.